Last week in chapter 2, Peter basically told us, don't be surprised when there's false teachers among you. Whether that's coming from the outside, trying to get in, or whether it's rising up from the inside, trying to drag people away. That uh, it was common then, unfortunately, it's still all too common now. And we just can't let ourselves forget that that's an issue. Not that we are to be paranoid. Not that we're to have some kind of witch hunt or think that everybody has bad intentions. That's not Peter's point at all. But what he's continually pointed to is the better we know the Word, the better connected and the better we understand Jesus Christ Himself, the more obvious those counterfeits are going to be. And that when they come along, because they will come along, we're going to hold to the Word of God. And we talked about the four pillars of a, of a biblical truth last week. Uh, and we're going to hold to that rather than some bizarre teaching or even if they're just a few, few degrees off, continuing to hold to the Word as we know it and understand it. As we come to chapter 3, he's still going to be touching on false teachers and false doctrine, uh, but in a, in a different way. It's, it's uh, much more of the focus on the believer in chapter 3 of getting ready and focusing on the return of Jesus Christ. Again, false teachers try and take that in a weird direction. Uh, sometimes they'll even mock that very idea. And, and again, uh, Peter is really telling us as believers, this is what our focus needs to be on. This is When we understand the end of all things, it puts all of this life in priority, or in the right priority. Gives us an understanding of what's important and what's not. And so, um, we also get some really great pictures. In fact, one of one of the best, I think, in Scripture of just the Lord's heart toward the lost and toward the saved. That, uh, again, the, the little glimpse of getting to understand Him better is what we need, and I think we get a great one here in, in chapter 3. So, as always, we'll stop for questions along the way, and uh, let's pray one more time. Lord God, again, we just desperately need You. We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would take Your Word and You'd apply it to our hearts that you give us ears to hear, that we lay aside our opinions, our ideas, and just receive from you this morning. And uh, we just commit ourselves in this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So chapter 3, 2 Peter. And we're just going to take it in two chunks. There's not a really good place to divide up this chapter. So we're going to take a couple big sections. It says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir you up, stir up your pure mind by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words that which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens of old were the heavens of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world, the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens... And the earth, which now persevered by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment 
and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as, as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter reminds them and us, and as I've mentioned before, as we've looked at uh, Peter's writings, we need to be reminded. That these truths that we hear, we go, oh yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that since Sunday school, since I was a kid. We need to be reminded it again and again because while we might mentally know it, they kind of lose a place in our heart. They get a little, we get a little jaded to certain truths sometimes, maybe to all truth, if it isn't continually brought to the surface. And, and so Peter, specifically talking about the Word of God, wants us to understand that being reminded isn't boring, isn't repetitive, is not nagging. It's what stirs us up. It's what gets us fired up. In fact, the, the phrase that's used there in the Greek means to wake up or to render active. And the idea is somebody who's sleeping and someone sneaks up and goes, wake up! <laughs> That's the idea. They have been rendered active, right? And you go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm up. That's what the Word of God is to do to us. And, and it's true if we think about it as somebody shares their testimony with us. They tell us maybe something they, they read in the Word or something they've been praying about. Even a hard time that they've been going through. But they see God's faithfulness in it. Man, you hear that testimony, man, it renders you active. It causes me to wake up and go, man, yeah, I need that. I need that truth again. I need to go deeper and deeper in my understanding of those truths. And, and Peter's saying, look, this is it. This is what stirs us up, what wakes us up, renders us active, is the Word of God and being reminded of His promises and His truth that He pours life and activity into us as we take in His Word. And again, there's a choice to that, right? We have to prepare ourselves to be rendered active a little bit. You can hear the Bible all day and tune it out, right? You can hear a piece or a part and ignore what you've heard, uh, and we all can. Now, it's interesting as Peter is speaking about the Word of God. In verse 2, he says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the, by the holy prophets, meaning the Old Testament. So, of course, that was the only written, full written document they had was what we consider the Old Testament. But the letters from Paul and others had been circulating and being copied. But a question that's come up a couple times in our question and answer times is, did Peter and Paul and the other guys, did they know that they were writing Scripture? Or did they just simply write a letter to encourage somebody that later on was viewed as Scripture, right? This tells us, actually, they understood it to some degree. Because the way that uh, Peter says this here, he refers to the holy prophets, but then he says, in the same way, and the commandments of us. Meaning, well, and he goes right after that to say, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he did know. In fact, just after this, in the next section, he's going to refer to the writings of Paul as Scripture. And, and so they got it. To some degree, they knew that the Lord wasn't only just speaking through them to others, but writing the New Testament Scripture to them. And it was only them. 
right? He doesn't say, and to everybody who loves the Lord and feels like writing a book or something. He says, no, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And that's all. They were called to be ambassadors and to write the scriptures of instruction of the new covenant. And they did understand that. Now, verse 3, he says, knowing this first. Specifically, he's going to be talking about the Lord's return. But he's really kind of talking about, in general, the idea of standing on all of Jesus' promises. But specifically here, he's saying, man, when it comes to the Lord's return and his promise of his return, man, you need to know this first. People are going to mock you. If you believe Jesus is coming back, people are going to mock you. You just need to accept that. That back in that day, and understand that back in that day, there were still people who had witnessed Jesus. There were people who had seen him with their own eyes. Now, 2,000 years later, people like us are going, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. And we just need to understand that it's going to be mocked. They're going to say, wait, wait, you really think that Jesus from 2,000 years ago, from the Bible, is going to appear one day on the earth? Yeah. Yeah, we do. The problem is, is that very often, they see that as just a blind faith, and it's easily dismissed by a lot of people. What I like is the way that Peter frames this, is saying that the more people mock that, the more evidence they're giving that the end times are upon us. <laughs> it's like, well, go ahead. You're just proving the point. <laughs> As we get closer to the end times, there's going to be more and more mockers of Jesus' return, of the Scriptures, of godly principles. And man, we certainly see it today where those who hold to right and wrong as laid out in the Bible are seen as bigots or narrow-minded or whatever. Man, as we get closer to those last days, and I believe we are... We are heading right towards, we're on the threshold of those last days. But we can't be surprised or caught off guard. Now, the people that mock very often are the ones that appear to be educated, have PhDs or whatever, and they're the people the world regards as being the, the educated and wise. But Peter says that those are the people who are walking in their own flesh. And there's a double meaning to what's being said there. So first of all, because they're not saved, because they don't have the Spirit of God living in them, then all they have is their flesh. It's the only wisdom that they have. It's, it's the only motivation that they have. And no matter what they sound like, they are simply feeding their sinful nature. Because it's all they have. But part of it is they can't accept that Jesus is coming back. Because it would mean that Jesus is exactly who He said He is, and that they're wrong and that they need to repent. And it's much easier to mock than to repent. But he's also talking about the type of wisdom that they have being fleshly or of that fallen nature, that their wisdom lacks faith completely. It is built upon the wisdom of other people who mocked the Scriptures as well. So it's like building a foundation of sand upon another foundation of sand. People that have mocked the Lord they then take that same information, ignore the evidence that's given for the Scriptures, and they just try and draw people away from the Lord. Now, I think one of our jobs 
And I really think it's an honor that we're given. Holy moly. They're coming for you, David. <laughs> One of the honors that we're given, uh, and I believe it's part of our calling, is to dismantle that worldly intellect. And it doesn't happen very often. In fact, it happens less and less. And, and right now, it seems like whenever two people don't agree, it turns into this heated argument, and they both walk away, and there's very little opportunity to have an intellectual debate with someone. But when it does arise, I think part of what our job is is to go in and give biblical truth in a way that's patient, that's loving, but breaks down that worldly wisdom. To go, you know what? Jesus never said that. This is what he was talking about. This is what he said. This is who he's, he is and who he's about. And you kind of, it's one of my favorite things, is when you get to talk to somebody that does not believe in the Lord, is not a Christian, but they, you just see some of those lies being stripped away. And they're like, I didn't know that. I had no idea. I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite things. And I believe, again, that's part of our, our calling. We need to do it in a loving way, not a, a way where we're trying to combat people or cause trouble. Um, because, again, we're not called to a blind faith. And I think that's what we get to do when we explain the, the logic behind the gospel. That there is so much evidence that we've been given circling to the hospital? Yeah. Lord, be with that medevac helicopter. Um, We're not called to a blind faith. We're called to a faith that God has given abundant evidence for. Now, people say, well, certainly when it comes to the return of Jesus, that's blind faith. There isn't any evidence that Jesus is going to return. Actually, there is. Because even if the only thing you looked at is God's faithfulness in him fulfilling his promises, that would be enough. You know, there are over 300 prophecies or promises about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And they're so specific, some of them, where he would be born. And Daniel chapter 9 gives the exact day that he would arrive and be revealed to all of Israel. And all of these things pointing to his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, were all fulfilled perfectly. Now, the mathematic probability of that is impossible. Because those over 300 prophecies, many of them were not what Jesus would do, but what others would do to him. And yet he fulfilled them all perfectly. So only a few of those prophecies still remain. few of those promises still remain. His return is one of them. And I'm going to bet he's going to fulfill that just like he fulfilled everything else. Perfectly. Right? His return is what's next. Now, some people don't know anything about this. And again, this is a great opportunity. We don't have to know everything about Bible prophecy, but just having a little bit to be able, when somebody's like, you can't tell me Jesus is coming back. Well, let me talk about the other things that he's fulfilled. And you see some people go, Man, I did not know that. I didn't know that there were all those prophecies about his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, all of those things. But a lot of people do know at least something about it. 
And this is who Peter's talking about in verse 5 when it says, they willfully forget. They do know something about it. They have heard Scripture. They do know that there are prophecies about Jesus and about His life and even about His return. And they choose to forget. Where is the promise of His coming? That's what they said back then. still what they say now. Well, where is He? You guys have been waiting a long time. He isn't here yet. 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years. Again, they misunderstand. Back then, all things continue as they were. Now, I think a lot of times the way we hear it nowadays is that either God doesn't care or God isn't able. If there is a God, and I guess that's the first question, if there is a God, why isn't he doing something? Either he's not able or he's not willing. Right? Not understanding that there is, there is a purpose. And, and Peter's point here, really, is ask the generation of Noah if God moved. Ask them if their actions were important. Ask them if their decisions mattered. Ask those of Sodom and Gomorrah if they should have chose differently. Because opportunity and an ambassador of the truth were given to each, and they mocked. And judgment fell swiftly. It matters. In their generation, they were heading towards judgment, In our generation, we are as well. And too often, people mistake God's patience and His mercy with either a lack of ability or a lack of caring. He holds these things back because He is patient and merciful. He can bring judgment at any time, and He would still be right, but He desires to wait. And this is Peter's point when he says, that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as as a day. I've heard people take that in such weird directions. Well, see, it does tell us that God ages. You know, every thousand years, it's a day to him. That is not what's being said at all. Peter's point is God is outside of time. He created time. He's not bound by it. And from the beginning of it to the end of it, he is able to see it all. And because he can see it all, he knows exactly when these events must take place and he places them perfectly, right? He's not constrained in any way by time. And so this judgment and this time that we're in right now, the people are going, why isn't God doing something? Why doesn't he do these things? Why doesn't he prove his power? Because he is not slack concerning his promises. Slack means lazy. God's not lazy. He's not sitting around, well, I don't want to get to it yet. He is patient, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 9 is something that should be underlined, highlighted. That page should be earmarked in your Bible. Because to me, it's one of the greatest verses. Not just revealing God's heart towards the fulfillment of prophecy or the return of Jesus Christ, but one of the greatest scriptures that just speaks about God's heart. And so many people think that God is full of anger and vengeance and judgment. 
that he is just waiting for the opportunity to pour out wrath on this world. Others would say, no, God's divided all mankind up already. Some are going to heaven, some are going to hell. He's already decided we're just playing out the game. Verse 9 answers all of those questions. It is God's heart that none should perish, but all would come to repentance. But he will never violate somebody's free will. He's never going to make somebody go to heaven. He's never going to make anybody receive forgiveness or salvation. But it's his desire that every single person would be saved. Every single person would come and repent. And he is giving time for all those who will. He is not slack concerning his promises. He is merciful and giving time for people to repent. Man, so important for us to understand. So important for us to be able to verbalize that truth to other people. Why isn't God doing something? Because he's giving mankind time. He's letting us make choices, and he's hoping that that choice will be to receive his, his love and his forgiveness. Make no mistake, just like in the day of Noah, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, there will be a day where judgment must fall. He desires we would choose mercy. But if when the world rejects mercy, judgment is the only thing left. All right. Any questions before we move on? Again, I know it's a lot of heavy stuff, important stuff. Oh, there is one. That's a really good question. I know that it's, I've heard different numbers. It's always right around 330 that pertain to the arrival and the life of the Messiah. I don't know what it is for uh, Jesus' return. And, and those, you know, we got the book of Re- Revelation, which is just like prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of that time of the tribulation, right? So, but gosh, off the top of my head, I don't know what that number is. Now, it's a handful that are pointing towards Jesus' return. It's more than a handful. You think about how many times Paul talked about the Lord's return. Each one of those is, would be considered prophetic. Um, the timing is what most people would be looking for, right? And the timing is the thing that I'd say, there's a handful and people still argue about that, right? We're going to get into a lot of that as we get into the book of Revelation, which is not far away. Um, I'm hoping to do like a prophecy update before we actually start it, and then we'll do some other things and be bringing a lot of that stuff out through the book of Revelation. It's a great question, though. So, Lyle, did you have something? Yeah. Right, and he's going to get more into that as we go on into this chapter. So what Peter's talking about there is that people say, oh, things have just continued exactly the same since the very beginning, since God created the earth. And he's like, well, no, actually there was that whole judgment on Noah's generation. And they willfully forget that, right? Oh, it's always been the same. Uh, ask Noah. <laughs> was it always like this? You know, so the events that God has, where he has moved, where judgment has fallen, they choose to forget those right? Now, after the world of Noah, or after the time of Noah, the world now, rather than being judged by water, will be judged by fire. And not only the world, but the entire universe 
will dissolve in fire. And that's what he's going to get to in just a little bit. That that'll be the final state of the, the world and all that we know. Cheery stuff. So, all right, any other questions? Okay, verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven, for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught, unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of Scripture. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. The day of the Lord that he speaks of there in verse 10. Uh, often we think of that as the day. Jesus appears, or the day that Jesus comes for the church. But the term really means the time of the Lord. And it covers everything from the beginning of the tribulation all the way to the end at Armageddon. That seven-year period is called the day of the Lord, or the time of the Lord. And so, as Paul is speaking about this, man, um, he actually goes even further than that. More than that seven-year period, he begins to talk about even after the millennium when the elements will melt with fervent heat uh, and the word element there is important so we think of it probably different than most of the ancient world the ancient world tend to think of the elements as being water earth fire wind but what's cool and i love this, this is one of those things that shows me that the holy spirit was speaking so clearly to peter and the other guys that they couldn't have really understood the concept. But the word that's used there literally means the building blocks of the universe. He's speaking of the atoms themselves. And, and there's no way that they could have known that, understood that, much less the fact that atoms are held together and, and we don't quite get it, right? They've got negative and positive particles. They should blow apart, but they don't. And for a while, they called it God glue, and then they said, no, we don't like that. We'll call it atomic glue. And, and we don't really know why. Well, I mean, we know why, because it says that all things were created by him and are sustained in him. He holds them together. And the day that he decides to go, I'm done, whew, 
and they let go. All the elements, all the building blocks of the universe will dissolve with fervent heat. The heavens and the earth, the entire universe, the reason heavens is plural, actually uh, someone asked this question last week, but we didn't get to it, of that Paul talked about three, the third heaven. And it, the Bible talks about heavens, plural. So in the Hebrew and in the Greek mindset or the Roman mindset, there's the first heaven is the air we breathe, the atmosphere we walk through. The second heaven are the stars, the moon, the sun, the stellar things. And the third heaven is God's kingdom of heaven. Right? And Paul says, I was taking him to the third heaven. He was in God's kingdom. Heavens is used plural here because they will all be wiped away. Even God's kingdom, it will all be made new. New heaven and new earth. And the question, and I think in a lot of ways, this sums up everything that Peter is speaking about. Since this is the end of all things, what type of people should we be? Where are we storing our treasure? What things are we looking to that lead our life and rule our life? And what people? In verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in conduct and holiness? And then he really gives us the answer that we should be those looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God. We should be those so focused on eternity, man, that we can't wait for Jesus' return. It doesn't mean we bring it about. It doesn't mean that we make it happen. But it means we're in the same flow getting ready for his return. That we're sharing the gospel. That we're encouraging people. We're dismantling those worldly arguments in order to bring people to the light. We are those hastening the Lord's return, man. Living in expectation of it. A day is coming when this old, sinful earth will all be wiped away. And a new heaven and a new earth will be created. Verse 14 says, Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Again, the idea doesn't mean that we're perfect, without ever failing, without ever stumbling. But our desire is that we're on this course to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. And we're letting go of those things, those spots, those blemishes, all those things that we deserve blame for in order that we might press on to the upward calling. And we're desiring as many people to come into the kingdom as possible. Desiring to see that. Man, and not only will all the things of this earth pass away, but anything that's ever been accomplished on the earth. You know, when Peter talks about these things, he says it's, it's not only the earth, it's everything of the earth. It's every kingdom. It's every corporation. It's every victory of worldly whatever. It will all be erased like it never existed. And again, with that in mind, what type of people should we be? Whatever we're going through, whatever we face in this life, he says the long-suffering patience is salvation. That, man, whatever we go through right now, salvation is what's next. The kingdom of God is what's next. 
We can get through anything here knowing that His kingdom is waiting and unshakable. Now, in verse 16, Peter actually points back to Paul and says uh, that he, Paul and he are in agreement on these things, on all these things. What Paul addresses, man, I'm right along with that. And back then and still today, people try and kind of act like Peter and Paul were at odds with one another. That's not true at all. I've even heard people teach that Peter gives this little dig about Paul. Oh, yeah, well, some of the things Paul talks about are hard to understand. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that Paul gets into the tough issues. Paul addresses the hard things that are hard for anyone to understand, and that's what the false teachers latch on to because they can twist it, right? And so, again, he's, he's just warning them, saying, man, don't, don't let those people take you off course. Don't let them take you in some other direction. They are untaught, unstable people that twist the Scriptures, and again, he's referring to Paul's writings as the Scriptures, to their own destruction. And it was true back then, still true today. But you, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you guys already know this stuff, but just beware as you also fall from your own steadfastness. Don't let these guys take you off course. Don't let them take you off the importance of Jesus. And, and then his final exhortation in this letter is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that really sums it up as far as what our job that we should be looking for. And I just want to grow in, in the grace of God. I need more of it now than I needed it when I first got saved. It's more important to me now than it was then. I want to know Jesus more every time I get in the Bible. Every time I get in the Word, I want to know Him more and more. Man, and I, I love that this is like, from this day forward is kind of how Peter's presenting all of this. It's living for Jesus right now. Though we face mockery, though we face trials, though we face persecution, it's okay. Because we're also going to be living with Jesus for eternity. And all that other stuff will be melted away, forgotten. Amen? Amen. Any questions before we pray? Yes? That's a great question. Can anyone be an apostle? And if so, who appoints the apostles? Okay, so um, apostle is one of those words. We kind of need to understand that it's in levels, okay? Jesus was the apostle of God. Now, was it a term that was used by Jesus? That, and it just simply means a sent one or a representative. Jesus selected 12. That would be the only 12 that would represent him. After those 12, it is all believers. There are no apostles on that same level as the 12 anymore. And why I make that distinction is there are people that have a, a gift of evangelism or a gift of a type of apostle. that they, may, they are a great representative and a great teacher of who the Lord is, but they are not writing Scripture. They are not bringing about revelation that's apart from Scripture. There is a sameness and a level, an equality among all believers. We are all called to be representatives of Jesus Christ and of his word. But nobody is appointed as an apostle anymore on the level of the 12, right? 
and Paul's included in that 12. Right? So, great question, though. Good. Because you still have people that show up every once in a while, like, I'm an apostle. And you're like, good for you. So am I. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> all right, anything else? All right, let's pray.